everyone. Nice to meet you. This is Enes from 500 Emerging Europe. How many of you know Balint? This is not going to be that boring. No. It's going to be fun. Hopefully. So my first question is going to be, um, you're maybe the only second-time entrepreneur with a previous exit. Um, let's go back to those days, maybe two decades ago. How did you first start Team Distinction? What was the initial spark? So it didn't really start up as a traditional startup, essentially. We, like at start, I, I was at university and I wanted to buy some beer. And I didn't get money from home, so I needed to earn that money. And I went to a technical university of Budapest. And, and so many things you can do that are like illegal. Yeah, but, but, but I tried the hard, I, I tried yeah. a hard way, right? So we had this mailing list where they submitted work, like, you know, to our 10,000 forints, 20,000 forints, typical Flash websites, games. So I started doing that. And then, you know, I met two of my co-founders at the university who have been also doing similar things. And projects got bigger. And we just said, as, as we graduate university, either we go to state-funded businesses. At the time, there weren't really startups. This was 2007, 8, something like that. Or we do something of our own and you know, do it the way we like to do. And we decided on doing that. So it was really of, there wasn't a grand vision of a problem I want to solve or anything. It was having fun in a good company. And you know, this essentially started growing by itself. But again, it was quite starting from that beer thing. What happened with your alcohol problem? Where so, did that go? So it's interesting because our alcohol problem was quite good. We built an app called Cocktail Flow on the Windows Phone. You can still download it on iOS. It's still available. It's actually the top cocktail app in the world, obviously, we did. And, and actually, that application, because we designed it with a lot of love and care, was our entry point later to Skyscanner. Actually, Steve Ballmer demoed that uh, you know, in front of a, a lot of journalists and things like that. Specifically because at the time, the Windows Phone had this metro boring design language and Cocktail Flow was very colorful. So they could go, see, it's not boring, it's not boring. So our alcohol problem you know, became actually an entry. It opened doors that otherwise would have remained closed. Like the driver of your business from the start till the end, all the way till the yeah, exit. Yeah, we, we could say that. Nice. And let's talk about a bit about the exit process. Um, how did that come about? And looking back, 10 years back. Um, do you still feel good about the outcome? You think you, can, you could have done better? How, how does it feel like right now? Yeah, so the whole exit process was, I said, we've been really focusing on mobile you know, products. We built our own products, and we funded those products from building you know, products for other companies, like Skyscanner, Nokia, Red Bull. And essentially, in around 2014, a lot of companies realized that mobile is here to stay, and it's going to become something big. At the same time, they had serious challenges building up their in-house development teams. At the time, I think you know, a lot of you know, mobile agencies got acquired, and we also got acquisition interest from Google, Skyscanner, Nokia. And really, you know, the way this happened is they called us, let's meet. You know, the Skyscanner founder said, we love working with you. We said, we love working with you. They said, could we work closer together? We're like, what does closer mean? They're like, you know, there's a Went day for where... a beer together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they drink more whiskey there in Scotland, but, you know, kind of the same. Um, in the other company, you have to start drinking whiskey. Yeah, and, and really, I think for us, the, the main thing between Skyscanner and the other potential interests was all of these were talent acquisitions. So it wasn't that typical, you know, you buy the product, they wanted the team. But with Skyscanner, Garrett, the founder, said, uh, the reason we want to work with you is Skyscanner is web guys. We're old guys. We don't understand mobile, but we know mobile is the future, and we need somebody to bring that in. And for us, really, 
I think what this signaled is Skyscanner at the time was one of five unicorns inside of Europe. They just received investment from Sequoia from Mike Moritz, who was in PayPal, Google. And at the time, this was $80 million, so laughable at this scale, but at the time, it was Sequoia's biggest ever investment. So really, you could get a slice of Silicon Valley from Europe. It was that part. And, and for us, it was that learning journey. So we were joking with my co-founder at the time of, we would have probably taken this deal for free as well. It's just a nice thing they paid because the real value was the things we saw and learned and experienced during that process. So looking back, I think absolutely has worked it both for the network, both for the things we learned. And we actually saw internally, you know, really, really deeply. So we became part of the executive team. We saw everything of how a unicorn essentially operates. And this was at the time where unicorns you know, needed to generate more than $100 million of revenue. So it was also quite sizable, and it was actually a profitable business. Yeah, good old times where the definition of a unicorn was way different. Maybe we're going there again with the winter and the downturn. Um, then you stayed in Skyscanner for a while. Um, after building your own venture, you become basically a full-time employee at Skyscanner. What, what was your motivation in staying that long? So I think it goes back to learning. So we joined Skyscanner at a very interesting stage. Skyscanner was made in Bootstrap, but in 2008, they had to take venture capital because you know the economic downturn and for flights, it wasn't particularly good. And because of that, venture capital typically has a 10-year runtime, so they knew that around 2018, they're gonna have to sell, exit, do something. Now this means that when we joined, Skyscanner was a founder-led business, a typical you know big startup, and we transitioned to a modern software organization, which meant we brought in executives from Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. So we could experience both of how a big startup works, but also what are the things that you know, companies like Amazon and, and Google and, and you know, Microsoft do to work at scale. And we also met amazing people and amazing leaders, which we could learn a lot from. So I think the biggest motivator for me was that learning. And after the C-Trip acquisition of Skyscanner, I think, uh, well, I don't think I know a lot of people left because Skyscanner had this thing, it was mainly bootstrapped, so it took them 15 years to get to an exit point, which is quite a big, it was a $1.8 billion exit, but most of the people had, you know, there weren't any secondary sales at the time, so they had, you know, for 10, 12 years, they had their shares locked in. So after the exit, there has been a lot of shift in terms of the team, and a lot of people I enjoyed work with, you know, also left, and I also felt it's getting a bit too corporate for my taste, if you'd like. And interestingly, team distinction also bootstrapped all the way till the exit, much like what Skyscanner did up until 2008. Uh, was that a conscious decision of yours? Did you consciously decide not to fundraise, or was it that the Hungarian funding ecosystem was too immature, so it wasn't even on the table for you? Yeah, so disclosure, we did have one angel investor. It was $10,000, you know, Zsolt Weisbart. I don't know if he's here, as he's currently in day one capital. But apart from that, it was bootstrapped. And no, it wasn't a, a conscious decision. So in 2011, we went to Hungarian venture capital firms. They said, I'll give you a million dollars. All I want is 70% of your company, and I'm gonna give this money in three tranches and only after you do that. And we said, oh, we're, like, we're, we're very, very seriously considering because there was no alternative. But then, you know, at the end we said no. Then we went to the Silicon Valley. And you know, we got term sheets for 500K, you know, typical, you know, very quick type of thing. The only condition was spend the money in six months. And we were like, 
it's amazing, we're going to spend it in 18 months because we had a team at the time we could do it. No, no, we need you to spend it in six months. We don't have more time. So we didn't have the guts to you know, risk everything in six months' time. So, and then what happened is, after a while, distinction became extremely cash flow positive. So as we got better, more, you know, our clients' uh, demand got bigger and, and we could work on longer term projects, we just never needed to do. And actually, in the end, I think about, about the 30 people, like we had a 10 people team starting to work on a, on a product we built so we could afford to invest back in our, in our own, you know, products and projects. It, I mean, I think you always have optionality, although there are not that many VC funds, there weren't that many VC funds in Hungary back then, you still had a customer-funded business. There were thousands of potential customers that were going to fund your business at an 80% gross margin, you know? Yeah, and, you know, at the time, it was when you went to the Silicon Valley, they were like, it wasn't an option of moving to Silicon Valley. Like, you know, cross-border investments weren't the thing. Even from London, they wouldn't fund a startup that's, you know, further from 20 minutes away from them. So when we, you know, got that term sheet, we were saying, like, we're not going home anymore. We're going to stay here because that's the only way they talk with you. It was a very, very different world. That changed completely. A similar thing that Ragnar from Pipedrive told me where, like, they pushed them to move to the U.S. where U.S. is not a core market for Pipedrive even. Still, they were pushing them, and then eventually they didn't raise that um, funding. So you built a venture, exited it. You were working at Skyscanner. You were also an angel investor back then, and then you jumped back to entrepreneurship. What triggered that? I think it was, you know, after Skyscanner, I wanted to have a year where I don't do much with technology because I really, I think up to that point, I had a very successful career, but I wasn't sure if this career was what I wanted to do or where, you know, the wind blew me. Now, it blew me to a great place, so I was very happy for that, but I wanted to understand what is that I really, really want to do. And, and I think during that one year, I started to do a lot of things. I, you know, looked at angel investments and, and you know, one part is my initial angel investments like Shaper, you know, you know, just find the next startup here, you know, put the bar so high that it was hard to follow up. Um, but also, it was very hands-off and, and I, I didn't, I always thought that, you know, angel investing will be, I'm going to change that startup, I'm going to add so much additional value, like, you know, and, and not really, like, it's, it's like, you know, once a month maybe you can give a good tip, but I just didn't feel that it's something that stimulates me at the level I want to do. And then we had this problem of productivity, which, you know, during Skyscanner, during my work really, you know, I, it was really ticking, and I... I wanted to solve a challenge that is really hard and non-trivial. So I kind of went into craft of knowing this is an insane idea. It's one of the most crowded markets, you know, dominated by Microsoft, Google. It's kind of impossible to win there. But I think kind of that was the point of, of at the time, there were playbooks of how to build a vertical SaaS and things like that. And I wanted to do something that is so crazy that it doesn't matter if it fails. Maybe this was this protectionist of, hey, once they look at you, if you're somebody successful and the next thing fails, you know, your, your ego goes down, you feel like, oh my God, I'm just, I had luck, but I'm a complete failure. But if you fail in this space, it's fine because everybody, like, like who blames you? You can't open in Microsoft, right? So. Nice. And can you tell us what Craft Docs does and how did you validate that initial need in the customer? What were the sparks of early product market fit? Yeah, so. Craft essentially is, is a, is a long-form content creator. It's, it's a document writer tool, right? So my original need or why I did that is a Skyscanner at the time was an interesting company. We had 700 employees in 10 offices across the globe. It was a European company. So Garrett said, it's not like Silicon Valley where everybody moves to you. You have to go where the pockets of talents are. 
Now this resulted in a lot of asynchronous communication and a lot of written communication because Garrett was very big on first principles. Now my job was to influence the 700 person organization, mainly in writing, maybe asynchronously, uh, through email. Now the problem with email was either it's too long and nobody reads it or it's too short and doesn't have information. And, and I think, you know, as we brought in like leaders from Amazon, we started adopting this promotional process where you write a promotional document, which really has to be really crisp, really good, articulating why you should be promoted. And then you start to realize of how you communicate and you know how effective that is. And a knowledge worker is just almost everything. It's not everything, but it's close to everything. Yet the tools we use are extremely outdated. So I think that's how the whole idea came. And you know, when it comes to product market fit and how we validate it, first we wanted to build something that works for me. And then you know, we grew a four-person team, so we wanted to make something that works for four people. And then we released a private beta with 100 people, and you know, 50 people sticked, and we listened to them. So, the, so I wish there were you know, a magical playbook, but I think it really it was more around core values of we wanted something extremely high quality, we wanted something playful, we wanted something that's easy to use, and I think our initial product market fit was not about the product market fit, but people seeing that love and effort we put in there, and then when they reached out to us, we talked with them and they were happy about it. So it was more of, I'll hang around with these guys because it's clear they care about this. I mean, I cannot use this for anything, clearly, but, but I'll say what I wanna use it for. And I think that's how we got all of that feedback. And over time, feedback gets consistent in some directions. And you know, afterwards, you can iterate on that. And is that true for product-led growth strategy as well? Did the market push you to become a product-led growth company or was it your purpose from the start, irrelevant of what the market thinks? So I think it comes from my background. So I cannot do sales. I cannot do a top-down startup. But over time, if we're good enough, we're big enough, we might be able to hire somebody, but I never did that. I think even my co-founder of Distinction Aquash, he wanted to do something with big data. But he realized that's top-down sales driven. He'll never be able to compete there. So now he's at Shaper. So he's doing a lot better job than that. But, but really, I think it's, it just comes from our DNA. I've been in a consumer business on my time. Like even in Distinction, we didn't have any sales or, or anything. It was we had our own products. People looked at the app store. They said, this is cool. I want something like this. So you know, when I looked at the market, I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to compete with somebody in the US who knows how to do sales, has been VP at Google, has all the con It's just like there are the law of physics of, of you know, from here, that's not possible. When it comes to product-led growth, yeah, you probably can compete. It doesn't guarantee you win, but at least you have a chance. So for us, product-led growth was, was not something that is you know, very scientific, it's just, you know, I believe from Hungary, if you're targeting global markets and, and you don't have an extremely strong sales network, you know, the, the roots of the product need to be product-led, and then, of course, you can layer on top as you can hire better talent, more validation, but I think it's extremely challenging or even more against the odds than a regular startup is to start trying to sell from Hungary to the US or, or whatever country. So you started with founder product fit and the founder market fit is more so on the product that strategy that you mentioned, but did that shape your market definition as well? Because of that strategy, although you, the pains that you mentioned were more companies like Amazon or Skyscanner, but it's tough to target them with a product-led growth strategy approach, right? So you had to target maybe smaller teams or departments within those companies. How did that come about? So I go further even though that 
when I said to everybody I'm doing a long-form content writing app for mobile first because the first product was an iPhone app, people laughed me in the eye and thought I was crazy. But, but really kind of that is, as I've been mobile in my life, that's what I knew. We now knew learn desktop and we're getting better at that. But I started really much from that and I said that there's an absolute gap in this market which we can enter because everybody's on Electron, Electron is tough to do on mobile. There are a lot of people on mobile who you know, actually like to write or on iPad. So we said it's, it won't be a market that scales, okay? So you won't be able to build you know, $100 million of revenue, but you probably can two, five, 10, maybe that's where you go to. But it allows you to put your foot on there and build a team. So, and, and when looking at the market, we're not, we weren't thinking, of, actually we have quite a few users in Amazon and in Apple and Google and big companies. They, they cannot pay for it with their company credit cards. But I think when you solve a problem that is so horizontal in terms of anybody, like, like one of my goals was my wife needs to be able to use it, and I love my wife, but she's not everything but not technical, right? So it's, uh, it was really what we wanted to do is, is build something that is usable by everybody. And again, one of the insights we had from Skyscanner is, for instance, with mobile, we've been focusing on APAC. And you know, laptops on APAC aren't that popular. So, so, so there's, a, there's a big market there. We saw that and we said we're gonna iterate, but we didn't have this persona in the head. It was, as I said, more of, let's do something, put it out, see how people use it, and you know, learn of what they value and, and go forward with that. What, what I wanted took us to some level, and then what the user wanted, and now we're seeing more and more businesses wanting to have business subscriptions, so now we're starting to target that upper end of the market as well. And where do you stand today from attraction perspective? Any number of customer figures, MRR, growth, user counts, daily, weekly, monthly, et cetera, you can disclose? Yeah, so I think, you know, recently disclosed we've passed over a million users uh, during craft. It, you know, we don't right now publish MRR or AR numbers. We have a healthy growth, and I think we're quite happy where we are. What's a healthy growth? So in our case, what's, what's an unhealthy growth? So in our case, I think, you know, as we're quite small, healthy growth is, is anything between two to five X. And, you know, that's where we are and, and, and that's where we intend to stay for quite a while. And um, looking at the competitive landscape, obviously, initially you started by um, pinpointing these large enterprises like Microsoft and Google's of the world. But I, I think there's also a lot of companies who are trying to do something similar in the product-led growth strategy as well. How do you position Kraft um, as opposed to your direct competitors, the more new age companies who are not necessarily mobile native, but easier to use, more flexible, targeting individuals or smaller teams? Yeah, so for me, I think, you know, a big role model has always been Dropbox in the sense of, if you think about, they're making $2.5 billion of revenue today from files. I mean, who cares about files anymore? They're still making that. And they're competing against kind of products which are free from Microsoft and Google. And the reason they could do that is they target a different audience. They target, you know, small, medium-sized businesses, individuals, and they appeal through product quality. And, and I think that's for us with Kraft as well of, you know, if we look at Notion, Notion is, is going to be probably a lot more powerful than Kraft. It has databases and everything like that. The problem is, you know, non-technical people get intimidated of, of Notion and, and the tools it provides. So when we're looking, for instance, our business subscriptions, we see a lot of lawyers, architects, consultants, agencies, freelancers, loving craft, and, and they tried Notion and everything, but they couldn't, you know, resonate with it. We're also a lot more visual. You know, we believe, for instance, that how Instagram and Facebook and, and the next generation of individuals, the way you want to express yourself is a lot more visual than just black and white and just, just text. So 
You know, the thing I usually say is, if you compare Figma to Notion, we want to be a lot more like Canva, which, you know, appeals to the rest of the world. And again, I think it comes back to that thing where even if we get really good with sales and, and top-down in enterprise, you know, outselling Microsoft's machine is, is something that you do not, like that's kind of what Box tried to do, and Box was a great company, but, but they're struggling compared to even Dropbox there. So, so our focus and the way we see the world going is more and more people choosing their tools, more and more people working in small teams, small group, and we want to build software for them. And probably this means in the near term we're, we're not going to be able to sell 10,000 person licenses, but that's fine with us. And you seem to have a lot of fundraising momentum, and that's not something we see a lot in Europe. It's more of a US story where a company raises every 12 to 24 months larger rounds, but you seem to have that snowball effect rolling for you. What's the secret sauce there? Is it the growth figure? Is it the market? Is it the team? Is it your background? So the way I look at it is, you know, traditionally you had rounds like C, Series A, Series B, when a company reached a certain stage. Right? So each round had a specific goal. You know, first, you want to build something that you can show to users. Then you want to get product market fit. Then you want to grow that product. And then you want to build a distribution engine. Now, I believe in that model. So I think you should raise as much as you feel you need to get to the next stage. Now, recently, there's been a lot of you know, interesting you know, developments in the market. But the rounds have desperately been disjointed from these goals. And the only thing we, I think, try to do is, is, is don't look at fundraising as a goal or a, a measure of success. Fundraising is a necessity that you need, you know, if you want to grow fast and invest in your business. But what we've been really focusing on is being very conscious about those milestones. Again, first year, understanding why users love craft, what they use about it. Can we scale that? And, you know, every time you move around that, for instance, now it's really unlocking for us that team adoption and that, you know, small businesses. So our business revenue surpasses our consumer revenue and we have channels we can scale. And once we've done that, you know, we can go a step further. I think we did nothing special. We probably also had luck. But what we did is we've been really focused on what is the next step we want to validate and validate that and go with that. And I'm lucky in that sense where I'm a solo founder, which is both lucky and unlucky. Lucky in that percent of I I didn't really care about valuations. In fact, I'd, I'd rather have a lower valuation because, you know, for employees, that's larger upside and the potential exit. It's, it's less expectations. The more you raise, the more you have to spend, the bigger the expectations are. So I didn't really need to fight or focus a lot on the fundraising efforts. If we got a good enough deal, we could go with that. But I think it really comes down to that execution of, you know, there's, a, there's now a very well-documented system around how you grow a startup. And if you hit those milestones, you, in any kind of market environment, you're likely to be able to raise funds. And a founder's role is obviously to remove obstacles, and most of the times the obstacles are either more on a personal level, so more hiring-based or resource-based. In your first startup, you completely bootstrapped the business, never raised funding, whereas this time around you're in a fundraising mode. Is it because the opportunity is much larger and you want to exploit it, that's why you need leverage, you need more capital, or is it a mindset shift on your part? This time I wanted to go big, right? So that's why I said I wanted to have a problem that can be very, very big. I think I have, like, like the first exit gives you that financial cushion, you know, a lot of cushions, and, and, you know, it gives, you know, working in Skyscanner, an executive position, gives me that confidence that, hey, if I want to go and work for a great company, I can do that. So I wanted to try something that is really, really hard. 
And you could probably, and I've seen, you know, how you can build, you know, a bootstrap business like this, but I wanted to, you know, this time go all in. I think one of our, you know, with distinction, if I look back, we've been very cautious of, you know, always looking at what are the risks because in the first three years, we went almost bankrupt three times and I never wanted to be in a position where I cannot pay people's salary. So, you know, as I said, with the investment, we said we won't spend in six months, so we won't take it. This time it was, I think I both had the market credentials in terms of it was specifically, you know, the early rounds are very easy to raise once you worked at a large company or, you know, have a good network. Is this proportionate easy? So I said, let's leverage that. And, and now we're of, we really feel it's, it's quite rare when you have the market in the right place, you have a product, you have the team. It's, it's also luck and it's also a lot of stars aligning together. So I'm just of, we need to, you know, try to give everything we have and then and, and try to make this something big. The way you said cushion and how with the cushion um, that comes with the exit of distinction um, makes you much more aggressive in terms of what you expect, the upside potential of the business. And we see that a lot happening in founders as well. Um, as a seed stage founder, because the opportunity cost is not that big and you, ha you don't have anything to lose, you have a high risk appetite, we end up investing and then as the company grows, now there is something to lose. There's a 50, 60, 100 people team doing a couple hundred K MRR and that risk appetite of the founder goes down and we need to increase it to realign incentives. So we often do a lot of secondaries to founders at series A or B levels to provide that cushion so that the incentives are aligned again. Um, lastly, before we close, what should we expect from Kraft for the next two to three years? What's that big milestone that you're trying to hit that's, that's gonna get you to the next level, whether that's number of customers, MRR, growth, whatever is in your mind? So we don't have big milestones. I think we're going step by step. Our next you know, really big focus is unlocking a lot better multiplayer experience. Now we're on Windows and web and you know, across platforms. But you know, the product really sucks when you want to collaborate and you know, work together. So I think you know, unlocking that is the first step. And you know, then we'll see what are the next blockers for business adoption and going step by step. So I don't know how long it's going to take. You know, what we really want to do is is every you know, six months, you know, find the biggest blockers, work on them, and execute on them. So what I can tell you is we're gonna work a lot, we're gonna work effective, and, and we're gonna you know, focus a lot on our customers and work towards that. But we don't, we celebrate milestones, which are great, but we don't have a hiring headcount plan, which we wanna execute. We don't have you know, an MRR plan. Obviously, if you know, growth starts to sink, we have to shift in crisis mode, but but hopefully that won't happen. So it's, it's really step-by-step -step execution. I mean, you said a lot of stuff around product and product is always the leading metric and whatever comes is a more of a laggard metric, whether that's adoption, revenue, sales, whatever it may be. Thanks a lot for joining. This was great. Thank you very much. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.